0: Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmur's Day, December 21st, 2020. Happy Festivus and Merry Christmas. On the show today, news and Disney patents. And in our main segment, Jim talks about the history of the Country Bear Jamboree Christmas Show. And I would like to dedicate this episode to my good friend, Guy Selga. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says, the moral of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is that any deviation from the norm will be punished unless it's exploitable. It's Mr. Jim L Jim, how's it going?
1: Oh, Len. <laughs> a little harsh for the holidays, was it? It touched too much reality, but I one of my great disappointments <laughs> last year, we were down at Walt Disney World in November, and we made a special trip over to SeaWorld because I wanted to get my picture taken, with they have a walk around version of Yukon Cornelius, but it turns out oh. they weren't starting their Christmas celebration. I think I was there on Wednesday and they weren't starting it until Friday. And it just sort of crushed me. It's the one with the heat miser, right? I missed well, No, 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 no. That Santa Claus is coming to town. And again, you're getting your rank and basses a little scrambled here. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, which one? That was the one with the was it the stop motion Rudolph one? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. The problem is that if we get started with talking about Rankin Bass holiday specials, they, there are a great number of really terrible ones. Oh. The Nestor, the long-eared donkey. We won't even go down that road, Len. It's just sort of. We uh, should do.
0: We should do a, a sideshow on next year on the Rankin Bass. Christmas episodes. I know it's not Disney related, but Mm. it would be hysterical.
1: Lots of childhood scarring there. Just the little drummer boy alone put, you know, numbers of kids in therapy. (laughs)
0: Do you know, do you know what the, speaking of the little drummer boy, Mm. uh, do you know what the little drummer boy challenges? No. It starts on, uh, as soon as Thanksgiving is over. Mm -hmm. um, And it's, who can go the longest Without hearing uh, the little drummer boy song, and if you make it to Christmas, you win.
1: Wow! Who actually enters the Air Force bunker? (laughs) Well, I mean, this year it's
0: easier to do, right? I was in the studios over the weekend and heard uh, some jazz version of it, and I was out. But Laurel and I play every year, Mm -hmm. and there have been a couple of times where we won. There have been a couple of times where we lose it both exactly the same time. Where we're and typically it's it's somewhere in Disney World
1: where Mm -hmm. we're like. Is this uh, a Mannheim Steamroller version of? Oh darn it, we're out. There are times when I've listened for five minutes to a Mannheim Steamroller version of a Christmas carol and have no clue. Wait a minute, yeah. Sugar Plum <laughs> Fairy dancing. At- yeah, what is this? Is this the Nutcracker? <laughs> or is it Santa Claus coming to town? What? What is this? I know there's a melody in there somewhere, but I'll wait. <laughs> That's know. exactly it. Like,
0: where in all of these bells is the melody? Yes. There we go. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, G-Sing1001, Bill H., and Bay Area Dawn. And longtime subscribers, Todd A., DizDoc, and Ian Sr. Jim, Mm -hmm. these folks are the dangerous fugitives whose wanted posters are displayed in the queue at Star Tours. The adventures continue over at Disney's Hollywood Studios. They claim it's all a misunderstanding involving a bulky R2 unit and some blue milk. (laughs) We all know that's not true.
1: True story. I learned so much in this part of the show.
0: <laughs> so I was at the studios, and I was uh, over the weekend, and I was testing touring plans mm-hmm. with uh, at the studios with my with my sister Christina, and we're going through the queue for for Star Tours, and that's where I saw there are actually wanted posters hmm. displayed in the queue at Star Tours, and I was trying to figure out what kind of an airport has wanted posters in it, like if I go to JFK. We're we going to Newark. Okay, Newark's a bad example. Well, we're not going to any say. normal airport yeah. in the United States. Yeah. Do they
1: have? Do they have pictures of fugitives like uh, next to the Starbucks? To be honest, given the prices that are charged at Starbucks, I think a few people who work in management <laughs> should have wanted posters. You laugh. My flight to Florida
0: when I came was thirty three dollars mm. on JetBlue, which is less than the cost of a breakfast <laughs> in the in the airport. Like it, you buy this bagel and this coffee. Yeah. And maybe a water for later. We will throw in the flight to Florida for you for free. Yeah, $33.
1: Yeah, I, I, I
0: could have gotten it for
1: $19 had I gotten up earlier, but I was like, yeah. I do not understand what happens to a bottle of water as it enters the terminal that suddenly. This, so this is $6. It, it, interesting. $2 out there, $6 here. How did Three. that happen?
0: <laughs> All right, Jim, let's do the news. Jim, a bunch of stuff is returning to Walt Disney World,
1: starting with. <laughs> the electrical water pageant, which returned to service yesterday, December 20th. Did I ever tell you about the night I got to ride in one of the flat aluminum things that they pulled the water pageant out onto Seven Seas Lagoon and Bay Lake?
0: Is this the one where the court transcript has been unsealed and we can all read about it now, or is this like an actual official thing?
1: Somewhere in that gray area. I, I, official. <laughs>
0: no one said no, so I'm I'm going with it was it was approved. Yeah,
1: it was something I was not supposed to be doing and was made possible through a friend. I was, it was technically ballast. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Which, by the way, <laughs> we Jim on. We need this. We need this part of the boat to stay down. <laughs> that's right. Which, by the way, is quite serious. When you get that thing out on the water, and I know they are pieces of chain link with basically Christmas lights on them, but they do yeah. catch the wind. And oh, that's right. Yeah, they're giant. They're still giant sails, right? Yeah, and the the way they have to move those boats and the engines actually pulling in two different directions to keep them stable. If you're looking for a throw ride. Forget about Space Mountain. Find a way to get on the water pageant, and th- where you will legitimately take your life in your hands. So a giant whale can pretend to sprout.
0: I, you know, I never thought of that. But yeah, those things are just giant billboards, and I'm mm. sure the wind has got to catch them.
1: Yeah, I never thought about that. In hindsight, not one of my smartest moves. And again, very, very happy to to make it back up that little canal and climb up behind the Magic Kingdom. So. <laughs>
0: What, this is this is one of the things that should be a Disney uh, a Disney Plus special. Like Forky presents <laughs> get, the electrical water pageant,
1: uh, how it's made. Yeah,
0: I mean we're not getting the Lizzie McGuire reboot, so we
1: might as well have something. Okay, okay. I, I was wondering about that. I'm bitter. I get that. The interesting thing though is there are were supposedly two episodes shot.
0: I'm just saying if you were if you were in New York mm-hmm. and you have uh, the dailies from those episodes, you know where to reach me. There you go. Other things that are opening, Jim, mm-hmm. the Coronado Springs El Mercado de Coronado Food mm-hmm. Court reopened this weekend, too, which is good news for the folks staying there. I still think of this as Pepper Market.
1: Yeah. So they rebranded it after they opened the new tower
0: or – I think so, yeah. I don't know that people got – maybe they thought Pepper Market was going to be too spicy. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I know. I, you never know. I mean, it's okay. a convention crowd. And you never know. There you go. By the way, I, so, so the fact that I still call it Pepper Market reminds me of the shirt I saw over the weekend mm. at the studios. I was walking down ABC Commissary, which is doing these, like, imagine a soap opera theme mm-hmm. from the 1970s. You know how it is, right? So that sort of like funky, jazzy thing. Imagine that, but it's Christmas songs where it's like if I took the guy who wrote the the theme song to Soap or the Love Boat. And I had him interpret, uh, oh, Silent Night. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. And it was like, I would listen to this all day, every day. It was Anyway, this guy was walking towards me. Mm-hmm. His shirt said, whatever, I'm still
1: calling it MGM. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was like, oh, uh, where did you get this shirt? Cause uh, I
1: want one. There you go. Man after my own heart. Oh, that's great. I Maybe mean, just
0: great. the right shirt for the right time. So there it was great. Go. Yep. Anyway, a couple of other things are reopening. Uh, the op- reopening date for All-Star Movies mm-hmm. is being pushed back a month and a couple of weeks. It was February 9th. It is now March 22nd. 2021, not sure if they're going to use that extra time to work on room refurbishments, which they'd started. Mm-hmm. Also, the Beach Club got a reopening date, May 30th, 2021. Uh, Wilderness Lodge, finally, uh, reopening uh, for summer, so June 6th. Uh, no, okay. no date yet for the Polynesian Village Resort, mm-hmm. which is still summer, and then no date yet for All Star Sports, All Star Music, you know, Kingdom Lodge, Boardwalk, or Port Orleans French Quarter, Port Orleans Riverside. So, mm-hmm. uh, but still, it's, progress is being made. Mm-hmm. And then, Jim, did you see this Disney patent for this thing simply called interactive toy?
1: This got by me. What are we?
0: So it's a, supposedly for an interactive toy that you would bring on a ride. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the ride vehicle for that, Jim, mm-hmm. which I have put in the show notes, what, what ride vehicle does that look like to you?
1: Ooh. We got a planey kind of thing going in here.
0: It's a plane, right. So the uh, the Imagineers mm-hmm. that are listed as the inventors are Scott Trowbridge, mm-hmm. Asa Kalama, mm-hmm. Peter Stepnowitz, Casey Ging, and John Hampton. So I think it's Disneyland? Mm-hmm. Because Scott is over Disneyland now, right?
1: Yeah. I want to say that after he rode Herd on Galaxy's Edge. Galaxy's Edge. Edge yeah, right? yeah. That uh, he returned to the mothership, so to speak.
0: So, the idea here is that you could bring a toy on a ride, mm-hmm. interact with the toy, and have it change something in the ride. Now, Disney's done some stuff like this before. Remember the old... World Showcase adventure games, right? Mm-hmm. Where you would play with a simulated phone and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in Japan, it would cause, you know, fire mm-hmm. or flags or something to happen. in, you know, the uh, Mexico pavilion, you know, you'd see parrots move and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, this seems like something similar to that, but on a ride. Yeah. Hmm. Now, I don't think it's a thrill ride because you wouldn't want people bringing toys mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. onto thrill rides and then, you know, trying to trying to play with them and,
1: the, you know, the toys would go everywhere. So, I'm thinking this is going to be a kid's ride? The problem is face it, for a patent, sometimes you deliberately obscure whatever character tie you're going into it.
0: Yeah, Disney lately has been uh, has been using just plain rectangular boxes mm-hmm. to illustrate things. They've they've stopped putting, you know, actual drawings of things. In the patent, but this ride vehicle was different enough. It, yeah, it looks like an airplane. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean you you can see the canopy. You can actually see the little gun turrets. Example two hundred and ten and two
0: hundred and two. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Hmm. Yeah, anyway, interactive
1: toy, like the next version of Pal Mickey again. Well, you know, there's a lot of people who actually wanted to shoot their Pal Mickey. <laughs> it's true. It's This true. could actually work out. We'll see what this is,
0: though. My, my guess is it's a Disneyland ride. We just don't know which one yet.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Maybe something from Marvel?
1: See, now the problem is we've got that Marvel e-ticket plus, the Battle of Wakanda thing. Mm -hmm. But geez, that is the last time I talked with anybody about that. That was five years off. That's one of those $900 million capital expenditure projects that's being held. But let me make a few phone calls. Let me send a few emails and see if we can get somebody to talk about this. That'd be great. All
0: right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us about the history The Country Bear Jamboree Christmas Show. We'll be right back. All right, Jim. I am getting ready to head up north for the holiday where there's a foot plus of snow. And let's face it, we are all already indoors anyway. So lots of television in my future. I'm assuming that Deutschland 89 isn't considered a Christmas story.
1: So Jim... It's worth watching. It's odd that you you mention a Christmas story. Holiday Favorite, MGM UA re- released it back into the theaters back in November of 1983. Bob Clark film was based on the semi-fictional stories that Gene Shepard told in his 1966 book in God We Trust All Others Pay Cash. <laughs> Did not do all that well during its initial theatrical release. In fact, by the time actual Christmas rolled around in 1983, This MGM UA thing had largely fallen out of theaters. Okay. But there was someone at Disney that really loved A Christmas Story. And and how do I know this? I have in my hand here my copy of the December 29th, 1983 issue of Disneyland Line. And the cover story reads as follows. Strains of O O Come All Ye Faithful filled a darkened Main Street on the evenings of December 17th and the 18th as Disneyland's 28th Christmas season began with a stirring candlelight procession. 1,000 carolers wound their way down Main Street singing a joyous celebration of the season to gather at the train station where the story of the first Christmas was told in words and music with actor Darren McGavin narrating the story both evenings, accompanied by a mass choir. Darren McGavin? Wasn't he the Night Stalker? There we go! All right! (laughs) I love
0: that show, by the way, Grover.
1: No, Kolchak. Not uh, the person I would have picked. Darren McEvan had a varied career, and yes, Kolchak, The Night Stalker, was one of the you know one of those I things. Love that show loved it love too. That show. Really did. Same thing here, but he also worked for Disney. He did uh, No Deposit, No Return in 1975 for Disney. He also did Hot Lead and Cold Feet. There's also a, a two-part episode of The Wonderful World of Disney he did in 72 called High Flying Spy that I hope somebody at Disney Plus is listening. And it's like, look, dig that out of the vault. It riffs on the history of Thaddeus Lowe, that the guy who did the balloon observation during the Civil War became the first sort of aeronaut and reported down to the people in the field about the battle. But anyway, it had been more than five years at this point since Darren McGavin had last worked for Walt Disney productions in 1978. Yet here he is, December of 83, standing in front of all 85 members of the Walt Disney employee choir and is telling the uh, story of the first Christmas. And the way I've heard the story, Len, is that it was mm-hmm. Ron Miller, Walt's oh. son-in-law, who just become Disney CEO in 83, who had seen a Christmas story during his original run in theaters and said, dang, Disney should have made that movie. Three months later, Disney actually launches its Touchstone Picture Division, though when it launched in February of 84, it was known as Touchstone Films. Ron largely launched the Touchstone Division because he he longed for the days when Disney could actually make a movie where a kid could say something other than fudge. (laughs) All right. There's this this famous interview that Ron did in 1982. E.T. has just been released, and it's made— $600 million worldwide. And Ron flat out says, like, if it weren't for the line in that movie where Elliot turns to his brother and says it was nothing like that penis breath, that Spielberg movie could have made for Disney. And, in fact, to be honest, Len, there's a number of folks at Disney who have told me that after Columbia Pictures actually passed on making E.T. in 1981, Spielberg Mm -hmm. took it to Disney. Really? Yep. He's obviously a longtime Disney fan. I mean, you think about how When You Wish Upon a Star shows up in Close Encounters, or for that matter, there's that wonderful scene in 1941 where the general, as Hollywood, you know, there's riots on Hollywood Boulevard, but he's in a movie theater watching Dumbo and crying. Spielberg loved Disney. I don't know if you remember the series about how 1941 went out of control. The movie? Yeah, it went. That was out. the Belushi. Yeah. Yeah, that movie was a mess. It was, it has a great dance number in the middle of it and it has an amazing cast, but yeah, it is a mess. By the way, it's another Christmas movie, The Way Die Hard is a Christmas movie. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, because 1941's went over budget and there were all these stories about drug use and that sort of thing, Disney turns it down, which is why E.T. eventually is made by Universal. Getting back to Darren McGavin now. It's supposedly Ron Miller himself who extends the invitation to the Darren McGavin to come narrate Disneyland's Candlelight Procession in November of 1983. With Miller thinking that you did such a nice job with the Christmas story, I think you'll be the perfect fit to narrate the first Christmas story at Disneyland's a Holiday Celebration. Ron Miller wasn't the only person at Disney Productions who loved the Christmas story. Fall of 1993... I was lucky enough to get a behind-the-scenes tour of the then-still-being-finaled Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress. This was early fall because the attraction didn't actually open to the public till November of that same year. I want to say it was Arlen Miller who got uh, the tour set up for myself and Michelle Valladolid. uh, But it was Paul Osterhout, he was the show producer on Carousel of Progress and the overall creative lead for Tomorrowland 94. He's the one who takes us behind the construction fence, and we, we eventually, inside the carousel building, walk up on stage, and we are now standing in Jimmy's bedroom. He's the, the animatronic boy now who's dressed as the werewolf and carving the pumpkin. Which scene is this? This is the 1940s scene. So that's Left side Halloween. of the stage. Yep, Halloween. Okay, left side of the stage. Okay, okay, All right, go ahead, okay. All right, and there on Jimmy's bed, still wrapped in bubble wrap, because it has only just arrived in the mail that day, Paul picks it up like it's a piece of the true cross because (laughs) it's an official Red Ryder carbon action 200 shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time. I hefted it, but- did, I
0: was just say, did you pick it up?
1: <laughs> I, you know, just, I didn't dare open it, because again, it's, it's sealed in the bubble wrap. But but as far as I know, that Red Rider rifle is still on Jimmy's bed in the 1940s scene on Carousel of Progress, so- That is fantastic. I will look for it the next time I go. Yeah, all right. So anyway, we were supposed to talk about- Country Bears. Country Bears, okay. Darren McGavin is, is narrating the first Christmas story at Disneyland in right. December of 83, and it's about this exact same time that the managers of Disneyland have turned to imaginary and you got to help us because only 5% of the guests are going all the way back to bear country and experience that corner of the park. It's, it's just, oh. it's gotten so lopsided. If we're talking about the country bear in Florida, That one has lingered for as long as it has because it's on the main main drag in Frontierland. If you're going from, say, the Haunted Mansion to Pirates and the Haunted Mansion to Splash Mountain or Big Sunday, you have to walk by this thing. So it captures a good portion of, you know, the guests in the park every day. Whereas Mm -hmm. Country Bear at Disneyland, they built it in the the northwestern most portion of the park. They actually spent $8 million to build it, moved 250 trees to create the illusion of the Pacific Northwest. And it did decent business. I mean, it opens in March of 72. It eventually falls through the floor because there's only one attraction back there. Once you've seen Country Bear, you've seen Country Bear, you know, just sort of like, yeah, that was cute. Less than four years and change since it's open it's like, all right, what can we do to get more people to go back there? And it's like, well, we could move the keelboats dock back there, but it's like, eh, that's not enough. And so by January of 1982, they actually have a committee (laughs) at Disneyland that is creating a master plan for the next 10 years. And they flat out say that they're talking about broadening or changing the overall theme of this land because Bear Country remains a weak draw due to its limited theme And potential attractions based around it. A broader theme would balance this area more with Adventureland, Fantasyland, and the like. And so they're actually now begin to have conversations about shifting Bear Country's storyline to make this part of the park a celebration of the Deep South. Dixie. Oh, what could possibly go wrong with that. Kentucky Hall, Mark Twain. And oh. Those of you who've been listening to the recent shows about the Dixie Landings re-theme and all that, oof, this is 19 years previous to that decision. To the this way of thinking, okay, Bear Country abuts a haunted mansion, which in turn is at the outermost edge of you know, New Orleans Square. So turning the Bear Country into a nostalgic recreation of the rural south, well... That would then make this land a logical outgrowth of the city and plantations, New Orleans Square, and the Haunted Mansion. And by ah. the way, Len, this is the exact same thinking that is powering now the redo of Splash Mountain into a Princess Tiana ride. That would make sense. In, in Disneyland, it totally makes
0: sense. Yep, yep. Right? From a geographic perspective, from mm-hmm. a time perspective, yep. it's still like at least 20 years beyond. So what is what, is, what, is, what is it says, what, 1910?
1: 1920? I think it's more 1920s because I want to say – Tiana's friend is is kind of a flapper.
0: So the American West Frontier closed was def, was definitively closed by like 1890. So this is okay. 30 years mm-hmm. after Disneyland, you get the geography thing that's going to work for you. All right. There's
1: another show. Okay, go ahead. For a time Disney develops this idea, I mean, and we get a rudimentary version of the Song of the South flume ride. There's also talk of taking one of the two theaters That's in the Country Bear Playhouse. And Mm -hmm. they had built the Mark Twain figure for American Adventure at Epcot. And the whole notion was well, what if, say, we reach out to Hal Holbrook, who does his one man Mm -hmm. show, Mark Twain Tonight, and we do a thumbnail version. And, you know, we have him come in, voice Mark Twain. And that wouldn't be bad. That would be a. Is he still alive, by the way? He just in the past year or so. And the weird thing is, you got to remember, he started doing Mark Twain Tonight. Uh, as you know, he was you know a starving actor, and he would do it at schools. You know, he would go in dress up. Uh, Mark Twain was probably still alive when Hellboy <laughs> was still doing it. Well, that, <laughs> Mark Twain caught a few acts. In fact. Well, the, that was the funniest part of the story. That over time, I mean, it, or, in fact, I remember when CBS did their television special version of it. There's footage of him in his dressing room and spraying his hair to make it white like Mark Twain. And by the time he finished doing it, he really didn't need to do much makeup. It was like yeah. <laughs> walk outside and I'm the old man with with, with white hair, but. They were going to do that. They were going to take uh, the Hungry Bear and change it into Aunt Polly's, similar from Tom Sawyer's Island or Walt Disney World. And then they were actually going to move the Tom Sawyer rafts in much the same way we were talking about moving the keelboats up there. And, you know, they continue to fuss with the idea. They were, there's another meeting of the committee in February of 82. And at this point, they're talking about, well, what if we took the bottom floor of Hungry Bear and say, again, we're looking for ways to drive people deep into the park. What if we created... A dinner entertainment venue like Pioneer Hall at Fort Wilderness so at Walt Disney World. They were also talking about, in fact, what's so funny is they were talking about building this in the land where Anaheim's version of Galaxy's Edge is now located. But they were going to do a a Fox and the Hound ride-through event where, you know, you would board cars similar to the Model T that Amos Slade drove in that animated feature. And then roll around in an indoor-outdoor environment from an 81 Disney production. And there was even some talk of, well, you know, if we're going to make this sort of tie to the world and the, the lore of Mark Twain, it's like they were actually talking about creating a show scene across the way on Tom Sawyer's Island that could be seen from the Mark Twain and the Columbia and the rafts, where you had, you know, Mark and Huck as AA figures. Are all of the um, Samuel Clemens stories in, pub- in the public domain now? Yeah, they've all got to be, Oh, right? they got to be. Yeah, yeah, okay, all right. You know. But anyway, here's the problem. It's going to take six months at least to develop all this material. It's going to take another 15 months after that to create all the necessary show elements and then complete the onset side construction phase. Preliminary budget, you know, as they were going to sort of work this out, it's like, wow, that's $30 million. And meanwhile, attendance continues to erode in bear country, and it's like, we need to fix now. You guys need to do something now. And so this is where Dave Feiton and Michael Sprout enter. Uh, they're two young imaginers, you know, looking to prove themselves. And there's this great story in the winter 1985 issue of Disney News Magazine, where Michael Sprout is, is talking to Betsy Richmond, says, look, Dave and I both really like Country Bear. And we were talking about it one day. We decided these poor bears must be tired of singing the same songs over and over again. So <laughs> we tried our head at developing a new show that would take the bears and put them in an entirely different context. And Feiton went on to explain, we treated the bears like a repertory company and wrote a new play for them. And so it's just, and the notion was, sure. okay, all right, you know, what do we need for costumes? What do we need for scenery, a songs, dialogue? And they bring the sketches to then WDI creative chief Marty Scalar. He looks at them and he knows the people at Disneyland are just sort of like, you got to help us, you got to help us. And it's like, all right, guys, it's late 1983. I need this for next Christmas. Can you do it? Because they had the second theater, they were actually able to keep Country Bear open, but to be programming the new show in the second theater.
0: So in like June of 1984, when they're prepping the show, you could walk in and hear next
1: door. That's right. <laughs> parts of the Christmas show. Oh, that's funny. Country Bear Christmas special opens November 23rd, 1984 at Disneyland, as well as at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. In fact, they were able to bang, it's out everywhere. Uh, wow. Me- you know, immediately becomes a hit with theme park visitors. So much so that Marty Sculler orders Fightin' and is about to write a second more long-lived show. So that's when they come up with Country Bear Vacation Hoedown which right. debuts in February of '86. They also dummied out concepts for two other shows, a Halloween Country Bear show and a St. Valentine's Day show. I've seen
0: the the concept art for these.
1: Have you really?
0: Yes. Anything particularly
1: leap out or
0: I mean the Halloween they're they're in uh, they're in costumes and St. Valentine's Day there's a lot of, you know, bears dressed up as Cupid thing. It, pretty standard stuff but okay the halloween thing would have been would have been interesting had they done it. I don't know if they would have had much of a time to turn around for
1: christmas then yeah they did need at least three weeks and each time they changed the show whether they went from christmas to the standard country bear or the standard country bear to christmas it cost $50,000 and but here's the problem that while the Walt Disney World version you know continued to do steady business Just after a year or two, the folks out in Anaheim lost their enthusiasm for this seasonal show. And and Disney, all sorts of things to try and prop it up to keep it going. In fact, there was one year, I want to say it was 86, 87, where the only way if you wanted to get your picture taken with, with Santa at Disneyland, you had to hike all the way back to Bear Country. Oof. So these exhausted, sweaty children, you know, the, I got to see these photos of these kids drooping at Santa's lap because it's like, I walked all the way back here and don't make me go to Country Bear. So they were looking for a more permanent solution, particularly in California. So this is where Splash Mountain and Critter Country came in. But anyway, that brings us to the end of the Country Bear special story. If you're like me and you missed this seasonal show, well, you know, there's always Tokyo Disneyland. It's still there, really? Yeah. It's in Tokyo? But there, it's called the Jingle Bell Jamboree, and it's been presented there seasonally since 1988. But I want to say it was Stingray on Twitter the other day that put up some photographs of teddy Barra in her Christmas special outfit. And the attention to detail is crazy if really, if you go close on her cast is actually been signed by Bunny Bubbles and Beulah. <laughs> <laughs> and she still has her her ski passes hanging off of her jacket. so ah oh,
0: that's classic.
1: yeah, but anyway, there you go. That is fantastic. i didn't uh, I didn't know about that. Is the show on YouTube? Yeah, I mean, that's the joy of YouTube is all this stuff lives on. In fact, I don't know if you. Pay attention to what Sam Carter is up to, but he has been loading up all of the old Disneyland Christmas parades. Just the other night, they were running the ad for the new Christmas special that they're going to be doing on Christmas Day from Walt Disney World, and... It's Titus Burgess who played Sebastian on Broadway, and mm-hmm. he's one of the hosts of the things. And it's like I genuinely feel bad for the guy, and it's like, well, uh, here I am socially distancing and pointing to something that will be filmed later. I hope.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a, a strange, uh, stranger for the parade. We'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish Show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including new in-park audio and a special series on Epcot storytelling. You can find more of Jim at jimhalemedia.com and more of me, len at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be leading casting and bourbon tasting classes, not at the same time, at the 2021 Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival, Saturday, January 23rd at the Meadow Event Center in beautiful downtown Doswell, Virginia. While Aaron's doing that, please go onto iTunes and Radar show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.